Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand. Today, I am speaking to Evan McNary. Evan is a filmmaker originally from Atlanta. After getting his MFA from Florida State, he eventually relocated to Los Angeles, where he worked on the business side of production at ICM and Anonymous Content. Now, he has since transitioned over to writing and directing and now serves as the managing director for the production company Craft Services. And in 2021, he released his feature film debut titled Ragged Heart, which is a touching story about a father coping with grief after the death of his daughter, which was set and filmed in Athens, Georgia. And as I prepare to shoot my feature debut in Athens, I figured there could be no better man to talk to, ladies and gentlemen, Evan McNary. Hey, Aaron, you've done your homework. <laughs> hey, you know, I, 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 I really try to pride myself on my bios, you know, and uh, and it's just yeah. out of respect to make sure you know who you're talking to. What a pro. Hey, hey, you know, I, I try, I try. Hey, well, speaking of which, and I'm just kind of like j- going to jump right in here. So I read from my research that you and your sister, co-writer Deborah McNary, you guys had a very unique childhood here in Georgia. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what your experience was growing up here in, in Georgia? Yeah, we had the um, more of the intense religious experience. Um, it's, it's tricky to know where to start with that, but our dad was a preacher and um, we migrated. We, we went between a few different churches. One of them, uh, the one our dad was preacher at, was known for its exorcisms. So I got a firsthand look at, you know, that sort of heavy emotional state, seeing adults in very heavy emotional states. Uh, Then we moved to a Pentecostal church and we saw all kinds of interesting things there. Um, You know, uh, again, watching people go through the whole gamut of emotional experiences and intimacies and things like that. so, you know, you take what you can from your childhood and, and uh, whatever helps, you know, make your lens unique. And I'm sure we've gleaned some things from those experiences, you know. So what was like in this environment, what was your sort of earliest exposure to film or, or storytelling? Most of the storytelling we got was um, through, we weren't, we weren't allowed to consume you know normal media so music movies tv all that stuff we couldn't uh we weren't allowed to to watch or listen to um so preaching is an obvious one you know watching preachers my dad and other preachers tell their stories um and then um there were there were religious uh programs geared towards kids so stories about missionaries um, uh, radio, uh, shows about animals and how God created these animals and things, but you glean a lot of things and it's all the same sorts of, um, storytelling structures that you would use any other time. So that's, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't 
completely foreign to then watch, you know, secular stuff or, or listen to secular stuff. Do you remember what your first sort of secular film exposure was? Sneaking stuff at friends' houses. So whatever friend had cable, um, I would go there and, and uh, stay up until morning watching stuff, just you know, gorging myself on whatever I could get my hands on. So, um, you know, action movies, stuff like that. At what point did the the seeds start to percolate that, you know, filmmaking or storytelling was something that you wanted to do with your life? I didn't, I, it was really late. So um, I started making goofy little shorts in high school, but I, you know, I didn't think anything more of it other than it was a, a way to hang out with friends. And then um, in college, I was pre-law and I took a, one of those intro to film classes and they just showed me all the, the cool films that um, made me aware that, that it was an art form and that you could do cool things with it other than, you know, chase sequences and, and, and fight sequences. And, and uh, so I caught the bug then and, and uh, you know, just kind of dove headfirst into it. That's amazing. Um, so by the time that you decided to get your MFA, what um, what kind of filmmaker did you hope to be? Like, what did you enter into that program expecting and and hoping for? I was I was totally geeking out on on the complete you know um, nerdy stuff. So uh, you know the the seventies kinds of films and and um, the indie minded sorts of films and and um, you know obviously everyone loves Paul Thomas Anderson, but that is, if you're going to find an American equivalent something like that, or, you know, really I, I wanted to make films like I, like the ones I liked from the seventies, like five easy pieces and, and those sorts of raw um, films that felt a little messy and still in the process of becoming, you know, rather than really a fined, uh, refined, um, uh, overly baked sort of film. Yeah, totally. Uh, and, and that, and that certainly like read through in ragged heart. And I love like on your website that you cited, I mean, three of my favorite, absolute favorite movies in Nashville, mm. five easy pieces and tender mercies. Yeah. 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 Um, just, uh, just three, three incredible films. Oh, those are some of your favorites too, huh? Absolutely. I mean, five, five easy pieces probably would be my top yeah. out of those. Uh, just personally, even though I recognize Nashville as just like an absolute masterpiece. And then Tender Mercies, the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe it. And I was, I was recently at the, or I guess this was a couple of years ago, I was at the Oxford Film Festival in Oxford, Mississippi. Mm. There was a woman speaking on a panel who had been uh, close friends and collaborators with Horton Foote. Mm. And she actually was a PA on Tender Mercies. And she like taught, it was like, she like briefly mentioned it or no, she had just made a documentary about her time going through Horton Foote's uh, archives. And so like I dorked out, I grabbed her wow. afterwards and I was like, I love Tender Mercies like so much. I can't believe you were on that set. Like, tell me everything. It was just, mm. yeah. I mean, all those movies are, are some of, are some of the closest ones to my heart for sure. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, so you, uh, did you, do you feel like getting your MFA and I, this is me kind of asking just personally, cause it's a, it's, I've thought about getting an MFA and maybe it's something still in the future that I might pursue. Do you feel like getting an NF, MFA, like got you closer to that goal of becoming that type of filmmaker? I will preface what I'm about to say by saying that I've met some of my dearest friends at film school. 
and I'm really fortunate to know those people I met there. But I, I think that film school is is a scam. It's criminal. I think it's predatory and um, they know all film schools know it and they're still doing it because it's a cash cow for them. Um, Especially in this era where you can, anyone can make a film. Uh, It's just criminal that these, these film programs are all charging all this money. Um, You know, and kids are coming out with a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars in debt you know, when they could have put that towards, they could have made 20 short films, you know, with that and made them on their terms rather than dealing with the, you got to also have to deal with the politics. And so a lot of these film uh, schools, as you probably know, you can pay all all this money and not even get to make that many films. Um, It's just crazy to me. I I made a, a website at one point, um, trying to convince people not to go to film. It's not called no film school. But it was, um, <laughs> they, that was, that was taken. Um, and they're doing good work. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I think, I think I really feel like I would have met some of these people that are so important to me. I would have met them out here just making stuff and bouncing off other people. I think you make stuff and intern, find the places that are making things you really respect and intern with them, even if it's for free, um, I, it's, I don't care if it's for free, if it's a, if, if it's a place you really respect and want to work with or work in, in that similar vein, those are the two things everyone should do. And I I think that, um, film schools should come with that kind of disclaimer right up front. Like that's really all that matters is making stuff and possibly if you really want to and turning places like I, like, um, you, you mentioned, um, anonymous content that was a place that they just repped everyone i respect or not everyone but so many people i respected and i worked i worked there and i worked at another production company both of them for free you know and you know um did odds and pay you know did odd jobs to pay the bills while i was doing that just because it was so and you know i ended up making so many friends through there as well. It's, you know, I, I like kind of laugh at myself because I, I went to drama school um, for my undergrad and left feeling the same way uh, that, that you're, you're feeling, you're expressing about film school. So the fact that it's even mm. like a, a passing notion in my mind is like somewhat ridiculous. Like I have only to look at my own past and history and arts in the higher education. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know better. That kind of perspective. So yeah, I do know better, which is why I'm 33 and I haven't done it. So, um, yep. uh, so anyway, so you t- you mentioned going to anonymous content. Was was that your f- was your first move out of film school to go directly to Los Angeles and then start just like, t- you know, taking these opportunities? Or what was what was your first move coming out of there? Yeah, that was it. Is to come out and um, okay, you know, you want to have you want to if you can write at all, you want to write. And have some, because I, you know, even working at Anonymous, I was working for all these directors that were fantastic on, say, the commercial side and some were on the, the feature side. But I was watching all these phenomenal directors tr- of commercials and music videos try to get into features. And they were having as much, they were having a really difficult time because they didn't have the material. So they were constantly grinding, constantly trying to meet the right person or the right agent or the right writer who had the material that could then direct. And that was going on for years. And they were like, these are people at the top of their game trying. So if you can write, 
or if you can find someone early on who can write, like latch onto them, generate however much you can, um, because that is the premium, you know, and, you know, things are going to change. I'm sure everyone's worried about AI and all that stuff, but still story sensibility is going to be at a premium regardless. And the, 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 um, the kernel of the story is always going to have some sort of weight, I think. So if you have some of that, that's going to get you in the door more than anything else. So at what point in your journey did you know that it was time to make the leap into your own independent feature? Um, what was, what sort of led you to that decision? Cause you know, it's always, it's always a risk. It's always a leap of faith. What, what got you there? You, you can talk yourself out of it because it's kind of crazy to do it ever. And I just waited too long. I was, I was being sensible for too long, um, waiting for the, you know, trying to get enough money, trying to get the right script and all that stuff. And I honestly, I should have made my first feature two years after coming here. I should have made it well over 10 years ago. And I would have muscled it out. I would have learned so much. I would have made certain friends in production, made acting alliances and and sort of made inroads in, um, what do you call them, film festivals and things like that. That would have been so much more valuable because all that stuff snowballs. Just one little connection here or friendship there. Those things all snowball and they snowball the most if you're making things. So I would say you have to just... To make them, I mean, you can be smart about it. Obviously, a lot of people are smart and calculating and they make the perfect first film, but very few people are going to make a perfect first film. Most of the great directors didn't make a perfect first film, you know. Um, so it seems like recently, the la- over the last 15 years, some of the best directors have made a really good first film. But I mean, you look back at, at the, the legends, their first films weren't great. You know, no. so rather than waiting for the right thing, freaking make it however you can and and um, then build on that um, because there's never the perfect time, you know, yeah. and uh, I really wish I would. I really wish I would have made my first one like 12 years ago. And then um, so I, this one was out of desperation because I couldn't find the money for so long. And then I finally I was just like, I got to make something. This is crazy. We, um, you know, I live in Los Angeles for the most part right now, and and um, I'm surrounded by people way smarter than me that are just waiting for that perfect moment to make their film or waiting f- for the perfect actor to come on, and they haven't made any features, you know. So um, you got to be a little bit, uh, you just got to trick yourself into being excited about it and in preparing as much as you can and just doing it, you know? We are completely philosophically aligned here. Uh, and I'm picking up everything you're putting down. Um, I, just me person, you know, personally, I, you know, kind of like made the decision that I wanted to be a filmmaker uh, about 10 years ago. And um, yeah, figured it would be like two, three years before I could like build up to a feature. You know, I didn't know, I, I didn't know anything. I was completely, had to be completely self-taught. And um and yeah, I mean, it's 10 years later. Now I did have a false start where I actually like shot a feature uh, in 2016 that I wasn't able to finish in the editing room. Um, and, and you know, that, and like, that was, and, and, and 
part of me was it was out of fear and like living under that sort of like oppressive myth of like the first feature and like yeah you only get one shot it's gotta be it's gotta be amazing um if you're gonna be anything even though you're absolutely right that like so many fantastic directors are like we shouldn't live under this this myth of of the of the first film heralding your future greatness and that uh, most of the great directors were just workaday artists who built up to their to their greatest work you know what i mean yeah dude it's oh man it's like wanting to play play the perfect game of basketball and refusing to just go out there and play sometime you know what i mean yes dude you yes. can you can watch all the game film but your body it's such a physical like the way you metabolize what's happening on a set and generate things on a set you can't do it besides you can't get good at it besides doing it for the most part you got some geniuses who can but in the right they have to be a genius and also in the right circumstance where they have some sort of team around them otherwise it's really tough Absolutely. The other thing that you said that I love and is like one of the guiding principles of this project that I'm currently in pre-production on is that I have experienced it personally. But the thing I think that breaks my heart the most is I've watched so many friends have these great ideas die on the vine because they're yeah, because they're living under the mindset of if only I had the money, the DP, the what, you know, if only I had the perfect thing, then I could make my movie. And yeah. it's just, it, and, and you just watch great art fucking wither uh, yeah. on, under, uh, 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 from a disease of more, you know what I mean? Mm. And like, dude, like you just need to go out and make it. Um, and so yeah. that's been one of my guiding principles of like, we're, we're going to make this movie with what we have. We're not going to succumb to the, to the disease of more and we are going to you know make the best choices with the with the means at our disposal yeah and you'll make some good and and you're gonna be so much better the next time yeah for sure so so for you once you reach this critical stage of like okay i've gotta fucking do something where did this story that be became ragged heart come from it started one way and i always approached it knowing that it was going to be a mix of, you know, experienced actors and first time actors. I just love it. I love that the, the energy that can come from that and hopefully the authenticity that can come from that. It's just, it's my, my thing. So I knew that was going to happen. And I first wrote the story myself and it was um, quite a bit different than how it turned out. Um, I wrote it to take place in Atlanta. I wrote it to be a brother-sister story in a music scene in Atlanta. And while I was driving across country, I realized it should be in Athens because Athens had like such an interesting character to offer. As you know, um, it hasn't been overshot. It has um, it's a real, real rustic quality to it and a real character that um, I love. So I was like, okay, we're going to shoot in Athens instead. My sister is a town or was at the time it was you know a local and very loved in athens she was like the ferris bueller of athens and so i was like okay well if she's up for it we should team up and and, and uh, make it there and so then i embedded in athens and um deborah my sister would 
would suggest a certain character who might work, a certain person who might work as a character in the film, I would go interview them. And then if it felt right, I would shoot a mini documentary of this real person to get them one used to the camera and two to for me to get used to them and to understand how they spoke and their personality. And then we would go back and rewrite the script based on that character, on that person and how they naturally talked. And so then we retooled the whole script that way. And we would give the script to the experienced actors. And then the people who are first timers, we wouldn't give them the script. So the, the experienced actors, they would have an intention and or they, they would actually have, know what they were supposed to say, but would have to adjust. The real people would have an intention, but I wouldn't tell them what to say because I didn't want them to get in their head. And then we would, then we would put everyone together and watch it play out. Um, and for the most part, it really worked in a cool way. That's awesome. Uh, that's such a, a really, really smart pairing. Now, did you approach the locals first or did you go through the casting and get someone like Josh Michael on board uh, uh, first? Like, how did you? Yeah, we had those linchpin. We did have those linchpins. We had Josh Michael and we went through a casting, pro- you know, put it on the casting sites and the guy who plays the main character, the dad, Eddie Craddock, he submitted through a casting site. Oh, cool. And, and I had written it for a different character, younger character. And actually, before I cast Eddie, it was still going to be a, a brother-sister story. Mm. And then he sent his, in his audition, and um, I just felt like he had something. And I knew if we had a lot of money and we're looking for him, we still might not be able to find him. So it just felt like that was a thing that we were being given and we retooled it. So it'd be a, a father daughter story. Wow. It's because of, you know, he had so much, um, he had something and, and, you know, we would, we did rehearsals with him and things. And I, and I was just, I was totally sold on him. He had such a, an under like a natural understanding of character and, and, um, a real grounded, uh, vibe yeah. in my mind. And, um, you know, which is, you know, I responded to and and Deborah responded to. So we just, we stuck, we stuck with that. And that's the thing, as you know, when you're, you don't have a lot of money is you look for what you're being given and and try to make the most out of it. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And Eddie's performance was absolutely incredible in the film. Um, He's cool, right? Dude. I mean, like, yeah, he's got this incredible look. He's got this incredible like character to his face and everything, but it, it's the, it's the performance that like flickers underneath and like, but, and, and his natural calmness that invites the camera like in to his, um, particularly like into, you know, into those subtle emotions in his face and in his eyes, just really, really, I mean, you can't, you can't teach that. Um, no, you can't just pretty incredible stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're feeling that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now you mentioned, um, how did you, so how did you go about funding, uh, for this film and then how did you go about crewing up for for the project funding um i just saved up i do you know commercial work and stuff like that and i just i just saved up i i um near the tail end i did we did a kickstarter for finishing funds and that was also in part just to push us out to get the word out and to reconnect with people who might be interested in it and that's almost isn't probably more important in some ways um 
as the money uh, in in a Kickstarter situation is you, it forces you to get out into the real world. It forces you to sum up and be able to package your film, um, which then becomes useful when you're sending it out to film festivals and things like that. So um, we got, but you know, I'm certainly grateful for every, to everyone who, who did contribute. It was, it was uh, every, every dollar was helpful. So. And uh, what was the, what was the other part of the, how did I crew? Yeah, how'd you crew up? Okay, so I'll break down the super indie um, approach here, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, as you as most indie filmmakers do at this point, I know all the different um, positions pretty well. I can I can be a one man band, so I know cameras, I know lighting, I know sound, I know gaffing and gripping and all that. So I know in a pinch I can do all that stuff, but you don't want to because it's it takes away your attention from performance and that sort of thing. So um, I'm not happy that I I, <laughs> I I did a lot of that other stuff, but sometimes I had to. Um, but starting from, okay, say say the filmmaker, the director knows some of that. Obviously, the two people, the most who you're going to hire first, or who I'm going to hire first, if I'm going to spend any money on anyone, is the DP and then the sound guy, right? So the sound one man sound mixer who can also boom, um, has a good attitude, can roll with things, really cares, but is okay when you just have to run and you can't get you know ambient or whatever he's like he gets that whole situation so yeah um those are crucial and then you build from at least for me you build from there then uh, okay so you got for in my mind you got sound mixer you got dp then i go to um gaffer is the next person then i go to um first ac if you have focus but if you're planning to pull focus so that's what five people right there and then i go to grip and then i go to um like a a producer slash ad type um possibly um and then that's that's the, the crew sometimes it's less than that um and my dp is a guy i've known from uh where he was on my very first short film way back in atlanta and we've been friends and he's worked on a lot of my commercials and stuff since then. And luckily he lives in Roswell, Georgia. Oh, cool. Josh Fritz. So, and he's just a hoss. He's has the artistic thing, but he also can just get things done when you're in a grind and you know, you don't have many people. He, he can do it all and stay level headed and still try to bring like a cinematic feel when it's possible. So that's sort of a godsend. Yeah. Um, and right before we crewed up, I had a little commercial. Um, we were shooting in Roswell, actually. So I just, I crewed people that I thought would work on the film. So, you know, and I over crewed. So I brought, I hired more people than I needed for that shoot just to see who I really vibed with for the, you know, and I could cherry pick for the feature. And um, I found our, our sound mixer there, uh, Scott Brown, who is just, I, I can't recommend enough. He's, he's an Atlanta guy. And then, you know, we, we pick some other people from that crew. Nice. Um, I'm curious, kind of going back a little bit in the story here, but um, was there, did you have any 
what were you feeling, you know, relocating from Los Angeles and like settling down in Athens, Georgia, uh, for the, for at least for this artistic process? Was there, was there, were you feeling excitement that you were going to be doing this thing or was there a sense of like, oh man, is this the right decision? What was going through your head there? I think, uh, I think a good thing about a destination type of indie project is it makes you commit, you know? So you're out of there, you've jumped out of the airplane at that point. <laughs> you know, and you're just yeah. going to make, what are you going to do? You're going to make it work. And it gives you a certain momentum that is so, I mean, momentum is the most important thing, you know, it's just like forward movement, awareness, however, you know, all those different kinds of momentum, they're so important. And the momentum of you creating, um, you know, like we were saying before, you have to be crazy to start, but once you start, if it's a destination situation, you know, you're not turning back at that point. And I think that's super helpful, especially in an indie situation where you don't have this whole machine propelling you forward. Now, did you have a specific timetable that you were like, you knew you were going to be out by or like you had to get the film made by or was it an a, somewhat amorphous? It was, no, I didn't. I, I, I wanted to get, I wanted to get it done in a certain, you know, within a few months, but we were scheduling when uh, per availability so you don't have money but if you if you're flexible you can possibly get certain actors to do certain things like josh michael was easily the most um busy actor you know he's constantly flying around doing stuff and and so knowing him him knowing that we could wait on him for a certain day um was super helpful you know and uh, it, of course it take, it took way longer than I thought just waiting on people. You know, we probably had maybe 13 or 14 full days of production if you squashed it together. Okay. But, yeah. but it was like, we had a few days that, you know, in a few days and then we were waiting on one guy. Oh no, we were waiting to cast one person who didn't come through. And then I had to go back to LA. So I went back to LA. We waited for that person to become available I drove cross country just for that day to shoot him, to actually pick him up. From, he thought I, I didn't want to freak him out. I t he thought I was in Atlanta. He was like, I can be there. It was actually Patterson hood. He thought, um, who's a, who's a, a very busy musician. And I, I knew, and he like, he really encapsulates a certain feel for Athens. I knew it would be worth waiting for. So yeah. he, he, he thought I was just waiting there for him. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll be there. I'll pick you up from the airport. I drove cross country straight to the airport, picked him up from the airport. <laughs> he was like, Oh, that's cool. You came down from Athens to pick me up. And, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to freak him out and tell him. And, and we shot him out that day, you know? Wow. So damn, that's crazy, dude. That's, that's totally nuts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love that. How did you like, so Patterson hood, of course, you know, like if anyone doesn't know, you know, like, lead lead singer of the drive-by truckers um you know how did you go about approaching not just him but then also like all these local people to athens like vernon thornsbury vic peel chris hubbard mariah parker um how did you like what was your initial approach did you sort of have like a like a spiel or was it like individualized to each one of them what was your what was like yeah. what was your guiding principle i guess is really like in approaching these people that's all my sister deborah mm. she's just she's tight with she's since moved um moved but she's 
she's good buds with all those people, you know, Oh, cool. Uh, sees them all the time. And, and, um, the cool thing about Athens is you can get locations and actors for either free or not all the money in the world. So they're either, you know, for the most part, and things are changing, I think with so much work coming through Atlanta and filtering up there, but in general, it had a barter kind of feel to it because we had Deborah, you know, as our, our representative. Um, so it could, none of that could have been made for the budget we had without, without her. If you could do in a destination sort of, sort of situation, you just need one person who everyone already trusts over there. And we talked a little bit about, you know, these sort of three films that you threw out of the, these, 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 films from uh, the 1970s, Nashville, Tender Mercies, Five Easy Pieces. Um, you know, I think it's it's a little trite to say that like, oh, these movies could never be made today, you know, as if they were like easy to make in the 70s, you know what I mean? Uh, but at the same time, so much modern film writing is geared toward this like, you know, high concept storytelling, these very regimented beat structures and like the quote unquote, like rules of screen craft. Um, how did you resist the sort of the temptation that like, I like when I'm writing, I sometimes like I can feel the magnetic pull of like conventional screenwriting, like pulling me. Was it, was there, how did you stay true to these principles that you sort of like brought you to film school in the first place? I'm not going to die on any certain hill as far as that goes, because I, it hasn't like, I'm still getting there, you know, as far as I'm still built, I need, it is important to me to, for films to feel organic and to feel discovered and not sterile. So that's just going to happen. I think uh, that's, I'm just going to keep trying until something feels more discovered, you know? And um, a lot of times that's in the moment, if something's not feeling right to give yourself that time, you know, um, and going back to what the world gives you, uh, Every day I would look for, at least I would try to find one thing we were being given that we weren't expecting, you know, to basically I was, I was, I was, there were two things top of mind. One was if there's one shot we have to get or one moment we have to get, what is that moment? Because things are going to go crazy. We can't control that much. So what is that one thing? And then once we got that one thing and we got the scenes we really needed, we'd give ourselves a moment to think about what we were being given that we were glossing over because you're just like, you're just like grinding and grinding towards a thing. And you're probably missing something that is going to feel um, more substantial or more interesting than that thing. You're just like grinding towards. So you just could give yourself a few minutes where you can to, to, to um, regroup and think about that. So that's a thought I have, uh, as far as in the script phase, a lot of that you can just feel if you do a table read, you know, do a table read so much, you realize how much, um, things don't need to be in there. Just feel a little too pat, you know? Yeah. I mean, and it, it really radiates, you know, like one of the cool things is that like, it's, you know, this is a story about a man coping with grief from the loss of his daughter. And yet like, 
for much of the middle of the film, he's sort of in stasis about what to do with that. And that stasis like gives him all this time to sort of like have these conversations that, you know, about life or like have these little moments. And of course there's, he's, he's, there's a certain, um, uh, you know, the psychological burden that like he's dealing with as well, but it's not like, it's not like, uh, Oh, like, turn to act two like you must have he must have a plan to like solve his problem like he just kind of sits in it and it's like it's really refreshing and was like really surprising about the film i'm glad you feel that yeah i mean it is you're it is definitely a risk um because a lot of people don't like that or if they're looking for a reason to not like something which is we're just we're so inundated with media obviously so if you're into analyzing films you're looking for a reason not to like something you're like okay this is something i can latch on to is wide enough okay i don't want to you know what i mean so you you run the risk of doing it and it certainly there have been those sorts of feelings of like where is this thing going i didn't know where it was going and stuff like that you know that's you got to kind of just take those knocks um but at the same time if you're <laughs> if you're paying for it um, at least you can try to do what you want to do. Yeah. I mean, well, that's one of the, you know, that's one of the rare things about, um, independent film. And, you know, I, I'll just say this in general, cause this is like one of the things that like, I just enjoyed the most about the film was that there was this added texture that it was so clear that like you, you made the film your way, you made an independent film. And like so much of being a filmmaker is like, you know, having to adhere to clients or other producers or what, you know, whatever. And like that, that true independent spirit of being able to do things your own way, you know, and you, you also, at the same time, you, I watch a lot of first features from other, from filmmakers. And it's so clear that they're trying to impress somebody or they're trying to make it look just like something else that's been made, you know? And like, you feel that in the texture of the film and the thing about ragged heart was that like you felt like i as the viewer i felt the risks you were taking i felt like this that sense of discovery like coming across and it was a very rare texture that like not a lot of feature films had and i think like i i think it's incredibly incredibly admirable and like a real accomplishment um that that you made well i appreciate that man that means a lot and i'm i'm glad that that's coming through. You never know sometimes. Absolutely. What did you have? Um, did you have a plan for distribution? No, see, that's the thing is, um, I, okay. So uh, I do believe, especially for a first film, you have to just make it and get it in like, you're learning, you're going to learn so much and you're going to absorb so much. Um, and you know, all the books will tell you, you got to have a distribution idea in place um distribution's changing so quickly you know with with uh the internet that it's hard to know exactly where your opportunity is going to be in two or three years you know when you get the thing done and finalized um i will say this having a well-known actor would does change things watch knowing friends who do have like people who are like not a list, but approaching if you are a list, um, it changes things. It changes things for getting into festivals and, um, distribution because that's really all they look at distribution in particular, unless it's, you know, one out of a million 
there's like one film a year that's a super indie film that comes out that has no names, you know, but, um, so that's something I learned the hard way, but I also knew it too. You know, you know it, but I was like, you know what? I just got to make it because like I was saying, I have all these friends who are really good filmmakers and they've been waiting for years for the right actor to land. Like they have agents, these scripts are with these great actors and they're waiting and waiting and waiting for the right. Oh, I almost have this guy. Oh, I'm, you know, and I'll talk to him a year later. Like, well, that guy didn't work out, but we got this other guy and you're just watching this thing. So it's one way or the other. You just have to know, you have to go in clear headed about it. You're going to like, okay, especially if it's your first film, just get it made. I think knowing that it, it does make a huge difference not having because that's all that's all they see it's just like name or no name that's all it's just like i've watched it over and over again even like any festival that claims to be all about art artistic stuff if it has a name it's in you know so or that's at least the first qualifier then it has to be good or whatever um so um that was the diatribe i forgot what the question was so (laughs) <laughs> it was just about d- did you have a distribution plan oh yeah right right right. okay 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 so all right so um no i was just like well i'll, I'll get it out there and um okay so there's these tiers as you i'm sure you know there's like sales agents and then um they pitch it to distributors and then distributors pitch it to portal like the hbo or, or like Actually, that's not exactly right. It depends. Like it's all mixed up, but sales agent can be a thing you can use. Not necessarily. You don't necessarily need it. Yeah. Um, but we had a, a, like a sales agent was interested in pitching it to the distributors. So I took them on and um, they got some offers from distributors that a lot of the indie people get, you know, um, but it was a situation where they almost, it's it, I don't know anyone who's gotten a good distribution deal, quite honestly. Um, even even big bigger films, it's pretty gnarly out there. So, um, what they're going to all do, I'm sure you've talked about this before. All the distributors are going to have a certain amount of costs that they're going to put against whatever you make. And so, most filmmakers don't ever see any money because they're, the distributor's job is to hide any profits in whatever cost they say they're putting against it. And so, you know, we, we had those deals and I was looking through them and not only would they own it for seven years or longer in these deals, but they had a, a, you know, a, a flat, you know, 30 grand or whatever against it for marketing fees and stuff. And that's, these were the deals my friends were getting who had made films for 10 times what I made my film for. So, uh, I just went the, um, the, uh, there's a name for, um, organizations like film hub, which are, they're completely digital and they, and they take your film and they put it up through all the portals like Amazon, like, um, right, right, right. Totally. Totally. Yes. Yes. yes, Um, there's like three of them. And, um, so I own the film. I'm not making big money off of it for sure, but it's like, okay, it's on Amazon. It's on like all these places where people can see it and search for it. Um, And because it's my first one, I'm just like, I'm sort of betting on myself in that if I make a second one or a third one and those pick up steam, then I own the first one that may now have value. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. So it's not a, it's not a home run by any means, but that's just what I did. Yeah. I mean, the distribution system, if you can even call it that, it's just, it's, it's such chaos and it's so skewed against, um, it's, it's so skewed against indies. Obviously genre stuff, people are, I believe they are making money, um, on film hub because there, there's such a loyal fan base there, you know, sure. horror, horror specifically. I guess, uh, you know, my question, you, you've already sort of alluded to this, but just to ask the, the, the question sort of flat out, you know, as someone who is planning to shoot, you know, his first feature in Athens, Georgia, I mean, you've already alluded to some of your advice, uh, like in the process, you know, as far as like looking for the moments that are being given to you, you know, sort of working with, um, having those boots on the ground to like take advantage of those, of those local favors. Um, are there, is there anything else that like comes to mind that, that you learned along, along your journey of making this movie? But to reiterate, you, you need at least one ride or die on set with you. Like the, who is the person who's going to gut it out? So I had, and ideally it's your, your DP. And then, you know, if you can get a producer who's behind the scenes and a sound guy, but that's number one, I think, um, who are you going to count on, uh, is so huge and getting the story as tight as you can and doing those table reads just so when things change, your body's absorbed it on, on such a, a basic level that you can pivot, you know, you, you understand what the story needs to be or what it can be. Those are the big things, man. And then, um, yeah, be, be limber for, to, for, you know, what opportunities are there that, that do work. And, and well, here's a, here's a big thing. And it's such a film, school professor thing to say so i hate to say it but tone is really important like having in your mind exactly how this world should feel because you don't want to and this goes for whole scenes it goes for performances it goes for setting it goes for set dressing exactly how does this world feel um you don't want to waste days shooting scenes that you realize later don't fit in this world you know what I'm saying? Or storylines uh, that feel good, like they're going to feel good on the page, but really be um, tough on yourself and on your script as far as like, okay, is this a heist movie? What kind of heist movie? Is this a drama? What, how, what does, what should this comedy feel like? And comedy is a lot of like the comedy in a story is definitely a place where things can get out of hand and you end up just like um, wasting time shooting something that's never going to fit in your world or in your story. That's great. Were there, uh, in reflecting, were there any mistakes you felt that you made in this process or things that you wished you could have done differently if you had a second chance? I would have, okay, here's a good one. In shot design, this is pretty obvious, but when you're, going when you're in the chaos of trying to make a film i forgot this anyway think about the feel the visual flow from scene to scene and what the whole thing should feel like uh visually uh or frame wise 
So I really care about performance, but I also wanted to really capture this world, right? And in the mix of like shooting a scene here, grabbing a scene here, grabbing this scene here, I was focused on performance, but I I wasn't thinking fully about how these scenes, once they were fit together, would flow visually. So I was getting basically there weren't enough wide shots in <laughs> like in a row. So so I had these like great textures and like shooting through things and the great performance. But I was like, I have three scenes in a row where there's no wide shot and I'm I love this world. What what am I doing? So step back enough to <laughs> it's such a dumb thing to lose track of, but it's one of many things you can lose track of so easily. Yeah, it makes so much sense. It's also funny too because I don't know if this was your a part of your original vision, but in Ragged Heart, there's like ethereal uh, sort of layering quality and like movement to the to the edit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so the fact that you felt that like there wasn't even like quite enough coverage there is is pretty shocking. <laughs> yeah, and and not even like coverage of the perf- of the same performance, but just the feeling of the world. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. What were the moments that brought you the most joy in making this movie? Basically anytime working with Eddie because he had such a, a natural understanding of character and was so comfortable sinking into it. And he always brought something just a little bit off center that felt real. And he was able to draw that out of the other actors so it was just really, and then, you know, Josh Michael, I've been friends with him for a long time. And so it was great to work with him and, uh, you know, any scenes with him and Eddie together were awesome. And then working with my sister, you know, um, that was kind of a cool thing because, you know, she's in one way or another been uh, drafted to help me on, on projects since we were little and, and, uh, uh, it was cool to make a full feature with her and, and uh, I'm, I'm happy, uh, you know, we have that sort of that artifact of all that work together. And, and she was so sweet and gracious and, and uh, resourceful in making it. And, and uh, you know, and also um, my DP making a, a feature with my DP, Josh Fritz. Um, those are a, a number of the things. It sounds to me, it's like, it's the people, like the moments of like with the real people that like you get to have. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. It's a, it's so easy to get tunnel vision about the you know the the film and the art and what it might mm. mean and uh, both as a piece of art and also like as part of your our careers or whatever. And yeah, it is one of the things that I, I I am trying to you know as I'm in pre production and I'm like crewing up right now and trying to keep first things first, which is that like it's about investing in human capital and like people and like how can you treat them right and how can you uh treat these people with respect and like the artists that they are even when you can't pay them <laughs> like as much as they mm. deserve mm-hmm. and um because those are the things that yeah i think you know that you do walk away remembering and that like you cherish is the the relationships you get to build that's that's a that's a good assessment i would say having gone through this experience are you excited to make your next feature or would you make another feature film in the same way uh would you make it different way what what are you thinking for the future yeah well i'm gonna next one is going to be more like 
the one they say you're supposed to make, which is contained fewer actor, you know, a few actors. And I knew that going into the first one, but I just couldn't line it up. I couldn't make the story work. Those stories work in a way that interested me. And I spent so much time trying to write those stories and they didn't work. I did this one, but, um, but this next one, I think I found the right story. I'm working on that now. And that will be, you know, more contained with fewer actors. <laughs> what is your overall sort of sense of indie filmmaking in 2023 and sort of where things are headed? Are you hopeful? Are you frustrated? Where, what do you think about this whole, this crazy thing that? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly daunting and I'm, I'm frustrated uh, with distribution and film, film festivals, one distribution two as far as um, their tunnel vision and, and how they select things. Um, and it just seems like there are more filmmakers than ever making things. Yeah. So we should just be swimming in unique storytelling, like just crazy ass, really cool, unexpected, never seen before. Cause there's, there are that many voices who can make films now. And it seems like the things that are getting pushed to the top are the same, you know, story structure, the same visual beat, the same emotional beats that we've seen a million times. It blows my mind. And um, uh, surely soon there's going to be some sort of renaissance with all of that. And the indie people who are established are also just kind of making the same stuff they've always made, in my opinion. So um, they're not really taking chances. They're not really doing anything that is challenging or could get them hated. You know, they're making really retread it. They're doing the same thing over and over again. So um, that's my two cents. I, I'm just surprised to see it. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, this is something that I was kind of talking about with um, with uh, Noam Kroll. Do you know, do you know Noam I don't know. I know his, I, I love his work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm a yeah. huge fan, but I, I, I don't know him. He came on the podcast as, as like hmm. part of this series. He's a gangster. Dude. He's yeah. He's awesome. And we, we were talking about this, like this kind of weird inverse relationship between we are at a point right now, technologically where you can literally like make anything happen on a screen, Yeah, you know, certainly at the like multi-million dollar budget level, but even at an indie level, like you can do so much. Yep. So in this world of unlimited possibilities of what you could bring to life on the screen, the actual storytelling is at like at an all time like low. You know what I mean? Like the, it's bizarre. The possibilities of what happens within a story or within the souls of the character, within the souls of the art, is like in a totally opposite relationship, and it's just it's so weird. Yeah, I think people are running scared and. Again, the film fests and the distributors, and I'm not saying like my film in particular, I don't think it's that it's not super crazy or anything, but I know there are people out there making just like at the very way back in the day, they were making films like pie that were at least challenging. And they were like doing new things with edit or, you know, fun things with editing and voices and angles. It's just like, where is that now? You mean Darren Aronofsky? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, of course. But it's like, why isn't it all that now? Why isn't it all cool stuff? And it's, um, I don't know. You just bring it up like people running scared. The fear of taking risks. Um, I mean, it is scary. But um, 
you know, I think that at a certain point in time, whether it was just, you know, I like, I think about the early seventies and when so many of these movies that I love and clearly you love too, like were made, you know, in some sense, like the movie industry was like, had its back so up against the wall yeah. and like things were so dire and bad that it was just the, the, you know, the industry got a case of the fuck it's or that sense of like, you got your back was so up against the wall. That's when you find out what you're really made 100%. of. hundred percent. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. there's we live in this weird world of where there's this glut of there's a glut of incredible amounts of money being made at the highest level. There's a glut of the number of people engaging in the art form, like you said, more filmmakers than ever. And in this glut, there's this forever sense of scarcity mm. of or of, uh, you know, one misstep could like, you know, y- y- leave you to the dogs of competition. And then people aren't afraid to step out of line. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but <laughs> right. Well, there's there's at least two of us then. Yeah. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, oh man. Well, Evan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, where can people follow you? Find out about your work? Yeah the the website for the film is raggedheartfilm.com, and then my Instagram is Evan McCrispy. All right. And I will put all the links to those down in the show notes. So if you're listening awesome. to this on, a, on a podcast app, please go check that out. Please go watch Ragged Heart. You can literally go rent it on Vimeo, Amazon Prime, all the stuff right now. It's a fantastic watch. You will not be disappointed. Um, as always, you can email me behind the slate pod at gmail.com. That's behind the slate pod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at behind the slate pod. And you could follow our own feature film journey at Withdrawal Film. And thank you so much for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. When your disappointments come and you feel